It is a, a great thing to go to church with people that you like to talk to. Friends, that's good, that's important. Well, we've come to the end of Act 1. There are going to be two more acts. They're not as long as Act 1. Act 1 is the longest one, and we spent more time on this. If you remember, we started in Genesis chapter 12 with God's promise to Abraham of what God was going to do. Remember the Bible? Remember all through this we see the Bible is really a record of two things. It's the record of what God does and what God says. And what we have seen all through the scriptures is unity and a continual progress. Uh, In fact, you will see some things in the New Testament that you don't see in the Old Testament because there is progress to the plan of God. God chose Abraham. Why did he choose Abraham? Because God does what God does. He chose Abraham in his own plan. He chose him. He built a mighty nation. If you remember that, the story of going into Egypt brought them out, gave them a culture, gave them a land, gave them a leader. They built the nation. It peaked under Solomon, who was incredible, incredible wealth, incredible wisdom, And then, if you remember, there was a captivity because of their rebellion against God. And then there was a a mini-revival, shall we say, under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Times of the the nation there moving along as a, a, a shadow of its former self. But still under the oppression of an external government for some six, seven hundred years, I guess. Until we came last week, we crossed over the divide from the Old Testament to the New Testament, which I don't think is as much of a a divide as we're going to see after the ascension of Jesus. Because it's still continuing the same plan, there is a Redeemer coming. That's what's been promised all through the Old Testament. There is a Redeemer coming. There is a Redeemer coming. And last week we saw the Redeemer in Jesus Christ, and we talked about the Gospels last week. And I want to wrap this up today by talking a little bit today about the resurrection. In fact, I want to talk a lot about the resurrection. Um, We're finishing Act 1 next week. We're going to talk about Thanksgiving. And then in December, we'll have messages that focus on Christmas. And then start in January, we'll start Act Chapter, Act 2 in, in January, just to give you a little heads up of what's coming. I believe that the resurrection is the greatest event that this world has ever seen. The greatest event that the world has ever seen because everything hinges on this. Now remember the story of Jesus coming. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tells us. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to what? To redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption to sonship. Um, This redeeming Receiving the adoption to sonship is, is what's so crucial and what the resurrection is, is all about. So our text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll read the first six verses. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared more to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God abides now and forever. May He bless the reading of it today. This is the basis of our faith, that Christ died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And it's more than just theological dogma that we can slavishly recite without thinking. What you believe about God is the most important thing that you believe, uh, if you stop and think about it. Every area of your life is tempered with how you deal with your past, how you live your present, how you embrace and see your future. And all of that, all of that is shaped by how we see God. Now, later on in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm not going to go there, it's a, it's a great Easter passage which talks about if there's no resurrection and all that it means, there, there's no hope, people are still dead in their sins, and basically we're, we're sunk if there is no resurrection. I'm not going to wrap that today. That's another whole message. So I'm going to talk today a couple pieces. One is five reasons I believe in the resurrection. And then three things on our side of the table that changed because of the resurrection. So five reasons I believe in the resurrection. I'm just going to run through these. These are, these are a little bit more of, of the intellectual and understanding why there is a rational reason for a thinking person to believe in the resurrection. The first is the historical New Testament account of the multiple appearances of Christ after He rose, post-resurrection. There's, there's Mary Magdalene in John 20. There are the women returning from the tomb in Matthew 28 to the apostles without Thomas, the second time with Thomas to the group of the disciples at the ascension and to a multitude of over 500 believers on a Jew, Galilean mountain, which is referred to in 1 Corinthians 15, and in verse 6, notice did it say there, it says, most of whom are still living. Now, what's he saying? He's saying here, if you are doubting what I'm saying to you in this letter, go talk to some of these people. They're still around. Now, if you're making up a story, if it's not a, not a true story, you wouldn't say, go check, go ask some people, they'll tell you about it if that didn't happen. You're not going to say that. You're going to say, go check it out if, if you know it really happened and they were there. And that's what he's saying. The second reason is that the disciples were martyred for the belief in the resurrection. They gave their lives. The apostles died for the resurrection of Jesus. And as I've said before, one of them might have gone crazy, but not all 12 or 11. Okay? Not all of them. It's just too costly to die up for a made-up story. At some point, you're going to say, wait a minute, this is a lie. That didn't really happen. I'm not going to die for this. No, no, you, you die for the truth. You never die for a, a lie. Third, and this is a little more oblique, but it has survived the attacks of skeptics and remained the teaching of the Christian church for 2,000 years. No one has dispelled it. 
and many have attacked it. John Ortberg describes this phenomena in, his, in a chapter in his book of uh, Who Is This Man? Perhaps you've seen this book. It's great. This is a great read. And, and, and the chapter is entitled, As the Man, the Man Who Won't Go Away. The Man Who Won't Go Away. And he just talks about that on the day that, if you compare the day Jesus died to the day that Alexander the Great died, or um, Caesar Augustus, that these were, the, Caesar Augustus and Alexander the Great were known around the world. They were famous. Everybody knew the great Alexander the great Caesar Augustus. Don't hear much about those guys today, do we? Don't talk about them much. On the day Jesus died, it was just a handful of disciples. What happened? He wasn't famous. He wasn't world known. But he is today. Most people diminish in stature as time goes by. Most people who have done something famous... It just drops off everybody's radar. And Jesus is just the opposite. He is more known today than he has ever been known. Explain that. Explain that. Number four. And again, this is a little more indirect. But the benefits that Christianity has brought wherever it has been embraced, what other religion has helped as many people? And this, again, is a little indirect, but where, where, does, where does this kind of drive and passion and concern and selflessness come from? Where do, where do, how do we explain people that make the sacrifices to start orphanages and to start hospitals and to care for people? And, and if you trace what Christianity is, it's a living religion. It's living because our Savior is living. I don't know how you explain the life and the vitality of a Christianity that cares for children. Children before Christianity would be left to die if they were deformed or undesired. Christianity changed that. Women were considered to be property and second-class citizens. And you read the Bible and you will, re- you will see the elevation of women in the status of every culture that has been touched by Christianity. Education. The way we treat our enemies. People, when they used to defeat their enemies, they obliterated them. And you think about the influence on Christianity, on America, and what happened after World War II in Germany and Japan. Where does that come from? Where did that change come from? The universities... Orphanages, hospitals, soup kitchens, rescue missions, the list goes on. Who stands behind most of those entities? It is Christian people. Why? How do you explain that? Why would people do stuff like that? Number five, the changed lives of generations of Christians and our changed lives as well. Christianity is what changed the Christian killer Paul, Saul into St. Paul. It changed John Newton, the pagan slave trainer, to John Newton, the child of God. And you and I have stories like that where God broke into our life and he changed everything. If you've been around much, you've known people that were so mean that you didn't want to be with them. And Christ broke into their lives and changed them and they are new people. 
you know, just it's, it's what God does. How do you explain that? German theologian uh, Pannenberg said this, the, re- the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. One, first, it is a very unusual event. I agree. Second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. If you believe it happened, it changes everything. Because remember, what you believe about God affects everything that you believe. So, the resurrection, in a sense, if if you think with me, in a sense, nothing about God changed. God's immutable. That's one of the characteristics of God. God doesn't change. He is still the same. So the whole idea of Jesus coming and living here and dying and going back, God hasn't changed any. It's changed everything though on our side of the table. Let me share three things with you that the resurrection has done. The continual offering for sin was done away. He came as a once for all sacrifice for our sins, it says in Hebrews. What, what, what does this mean? Well, it means several things. It means my job's a lot easier. I guess I'd be a priest in the old economy. And it seems like all the priests did in the Old Testament were checked out people to see if they had leprosy and kill animals. <laughs> I mean, really. That's why it seemed like if you were a priest in the Old Testament, that's all you did. And so, thank God. That's, I'm, I'm kind of glad to have that behind us. On a more serious note, it means that all the sins that we have committed in the past are covered. All the sins we commit in the present are covered. And if you're a child of God, God has already taken care of what you will do in the future. You say, wait a minute, does that mean I can go and sin? Well, if you have that attitude, that says something is more seriously wrong uh, than you can ever imagine, if that's your spirit and your attitude. It says something about your relationship with Jesus to me, if you say that's going to be an excuse for your sin. But we have to believe that, otherwise if we die with an unconfessed sin, we have to say somehow that's not covered and we go to hell. Because remember, heaven's a pure place. It says that nothing impure is going to enter into heaven. So we have to believe that when Jesus came as a once-for-all sacrifice, it was for our sins past, present, and even future. Wow. So Paul could roll it, could boldly write for us in Romans 8, which is one of those great chapters to camp on. You could spend a year just going through Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives you life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's, it's because of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, there is no condemnation for us, the once for all sacrifice. At the end of chapter 8, it says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Powerful verses. Powerful verses. Once for all, sacrifice of Jesus for us. From our side, the second thing is the promise of heaven has been validated. Jesus talks over and over again about eternal life, especially in John's gospel. There's a lot of language. He talks over and over about eternal life and the idea that there's a life beyond this life. 
It influenced not only not only Jesus talked about it, John the Baptist talked about this, talked about it. It says this in John three thirty six. John the Baptist said this about Jesus: Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. There's this old idea that if you believe in the Son, which believing is more than intellectual knowledge, it's committing yourself to Him, it's yielding your life to Him, it's giving Him the car keys to your life, the throne of your life, control of your life, whatever, you, however you want to say that. When you do that, the Bible says we receive eternal life. How does one know that there is an eternal life? Well, how do we know there's a life beyond this life? Because Jesus proved it in the resurrection. The fact that He showed that there's life beyond the grave gives us confidence to know that there's life beyond the grave as well. The facts are in. The data is there. It's not hyperbole. It's not mythology. Number three. We see that the continual offering for sins were done away. Second, the promise of heaven has been invalidated. And the third is the power of a, of a death-defeating God is available to us. What does it say in John 16? Jesus is talking, so I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. He says the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to work in your life and he's going to teach you and guide you. This Holy Spirit that came on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that indwells every true believer in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 verse 10 Excuse me, verse, yeah, verses 10 and 11. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 8, 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And the Holy Spirit that lives within us testifies that we're children of God. That, that sense that you're a child of God, that God is with you, that God is in you, that convicts you of sin and guides you to truth. That's the power of God that is working in you. And the same power that worked in Jesus works in us today. So, when you think about the resurrection, think, of, think about it this way. I, I have three conclusions for everyone who has yielded to the Lordship of King Jesus. And I talked a lot about last week. I had two questions I put up here. I had some prayers I put on the board at the end. If you have yielded your life to Christ, let me tell you what the good news is. Let me tell you about your past. Number one, the first conclusion you can say, I have been totally forgiven by the one time, once and for all sacrifice of God. How about your present? Second, I have the assurance of a life to come because He is alive on the other side of His human existence. And third, 
and the present. I have the power of God within me to live for God today. Wow. Forgiven. Power for today. Assurance for the life to come. All this is all of this is grounded and rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is not a fairy tale. This is not something that somebody made up and put in a book. We know that on lots of levels. We know it from the information and the historical record. We know that from the track record of Christians all through the years and of Christians that you and I have known. The change that we've seen in people who are far from God and now know God and the change that God has brought in your life if you've given your life to Him and the witness of the Holy Spirit that guides you and convicts you and nudges you along your way. All these evidence, the preponderance of evidence brings us to a place of security. A security that we've been forgiven, that God's going to help us every day, and that heaven is our home. To follow up on last week, you know, some of you may not have responded yet to that offer of God's forgiveness and grace. It's still good today. It wasn't just for last week. It's still good for today. And if you haven't taken that step yet, I'd love for you to. I'd love to chat with you about that. Anybody on my staff, any of my deacons would love to chat with you about that. But that's the good news of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. It's the greatest event the world has ever seen. And it's ours. If you're a follower of Christ, it's ours. It is ours. That is the good news. All right, let's stand together for our closing prayer. Just let me remind you of several things. One is, if you're a life group leader, you have a meeting after this service in rooms 5 and 6 in the south end of our building. Also, Thursday, if you haven't noticed, is Thanksgiving. Um, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's probably my favorite holiday because it's not quite so hectic, not quite so hijacked by a lot of commercialism take time this week to give thanks really take time to give thanks we we have so much you have so much I have so much to be thankful for take time to give thanks to God father be at work in our lives for thus for for those of us who know you may we rejoice in you today for those who have not yet yielded their lives to you I pray that the hope of a life with you woos them and draws them to that place of surrender. In Jesus' name, amen.